Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey friends, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is the weekly highlight reel of videos that I have put out on YouTube. So in case you don't know, you can go over to YouTube and watch all of my videos. The channel is History and Coffee, and you can just search for my name as well, Heather Tesco, History and Coffee, and you will get it. And you can subscribe there. Thank you to the many people who already subscribe. And then what I've started doing is weekly highlight reels of some of the videos that have gone out on YouTube that would be of interest to the podcast listeners as well. So thanks for listening. And you can also, like I said, go over and join me on YouTube, History and Coffee, and search for Heather. And there I am. So let's get right into it. Today, we are going to talk about Henry VIII's palaces and the palaces he built, the palaces that he inherited, if you were going to visit Henry VIII, where would you find him? So Henry VIII resided in a series of majestic palaces, each a testament to his extravagant lifestyle, his sense of royal grandiosity, and the architectural preferences of Tudor England. They were a mix of inheritance and innovative construction. They served not only as royal residences, but as symbolic representations of power, wealth, and cultural sophistication. Let's talk about some of the palaces he inherited. First, the Tower of London, with its historical and architectural richness. It goes all the way back to William the Conqueror, who built the White Tower, was one of the inherited royal residences. Although primarily a royal prison and place of execution, at least that's what we remember it for today, it was a palace and it was traditional for monarchs to spend the time before they were crowned, in the opulent rooms of the Tower of London. There was also the Palace of Westminster, a marvel of Gothic architecture. It served as a principal royal residence, hosting key events and ceremonies, symbolizing the monarchy's ceremonial majesty. He also sort of inherited Hampton Court Palace. Cardinal Wolsey originally had constructed most of Hampton Court. There'd been a palace there before, but Cardinal Wolsey really took it to the next level and made it Hampton Court Palace. And then it was gifted to Henry VIII in the late 1520s as a way to sort of make up for the fact that Wolsey wasn't successful in getting Henry his divorce. It quickly became a favorite residence because it was so modern. Everything was up to date. It combined architectural magnificence with luxurious comfort. 
The palaces he constructed, he constructed none such palace. Henry commissioned the construction of none such palace in Surrey to celebrate the 30th year of his reign. Its name, none such, implied that there was no such palace like it, highlighting its unique design and extravagant decor. However, Henry spent limited time here as the palace's construction wasn't completed during his lifetime. There was also Whitehall Palace that he built. It had originally been York Place, again, something that he got from Cardinal Wolsey, and he turned it into Whitehall Palace, and it became one of his most frequented residents, renowned for its extensive art collection and its tennis courts. His favorite residence is Hampton Court. Henry's predilection for Hampton Court Palace is well documented. He invested substantially in its expansion and embellishment. He added tennis courts, a bowling alley, and kitchens. He reveled in the pleasures of hunting, feasting, and entertainment here, epitomizing the opulent royal lifestyle. The palace's vastness and multifunctionality allowed it to host grand feasts and accommodate a plethora of courtiers and servants. He also loved Greenwich Palace, another favorite residence. The birthplace of Henry was also associated with many of the significant events in his life, including his marriages to Catherine of Aragon and Anne of Cleves, was a vibrant cultural hub hosting tournaments, plays, and dances, reflecting Henry's passion for arts and entertainment. Each of Henry's palaces exuded architectural splendor and artistic excellence, adorned with tapestries, paintings, and intricate woodwork. The palaces were designed to facilitate the extensive royal entourage and elaborate courtly ceremonies while also offering secluded spaces for the king's private moments. The aesthetic amalgamation of grandeur and functionality in these palaces exemplified the architectural brilliance of the era. Henry's palaces were more than mere residences. They were tangible manifestations of his royal authority, his cultural aspirations, and his relentless pursuit of pleasure and luxury. So, in 1567, Queen Elizabeth needed money. She had a number of projects she wanted to do, especially rebuilding ports and building new ships for the Navy. Her bank account was essentially running dry, and she could have either raised taxes or held a lottery in order to fill it back up again. And she decided to go with the lottery option. So, this was England's first ever national lottery, 1567. The tickets were 10 shillings each, which was beyond the means of an ordinary citizen. So this makes it different from modern lotteries, which are often priced low so that low-income people can afford them. This lottery was targeted to the upper class, and it became a perk in society to have bought a ticket. The first prize was £5,000, which was enormous. It was paid partly in cash, partly in plate, tapestries, and, quote, good linen cloth. So I kind of wonder if Queen Elizabeth was doing the decluttering Congo thing to to get rid of her linen and decided to add it into the, the lottery prizes. It's funny to think about. To encourage more people to buy tickets, Anyone who bought a ticket was promised freedom from arrest for all crimes other than murder, felonies, piracy, or treason. So, you know, you could go crazy, but show your lottery ticket, and that was your get-out-of-jail-free card, literally. 
An advertisement set out the cost of entry, the number of entries, and the prizes. The number of entries was limited to 400,000, and unfortunately, the winner's identity has been lost to history. But here's what it said. I actually included a picture on the website of what? Of the poster advertising the lottery. And here's what it said. It says, a very rich lottery general without any blanks containing a great number of good prizes as well as ready money and of plate and certain merchandises having been valued and priced by the commandment of the queen's most excellent majesty by men expert and skillful and the same lottery is erected by her majesty's order to the intent that such commodity as may chance to arise thereof after the charge is born may be converted towards the reparation of the havens and the strength of the realm and towards such other public good works. The number of lots shall be 400,000 and no more, and every lot shall be the sum of 10 shillings sterling only and no more. And whosoever shall win the greatest and most excellent prize shall receive the value of 5,000 pounds sterling, that is to say, 3,000 pounds in ready money, 700 pounds in plate gilt, and the rest in good tapestry, made for hangings and other covertures, and certain sorts of good linen cloth. The person who won second prize received the value of £3,500 in ready money plate and the aforementioned discarded linen cloth. And the third prize was £3,000 in money plate and cloth. The lottery was considered a voluntary tax, and the practice of lottery as a national fundraising method has survived and grown around the world. In England, it has survived to this day, and it was set up again as a state franchise lottery under the government license in 1993 under John Major. Erect a rich and stately carved cross whereon her statue shall with glory shine, and henceforth see you call it Charing Cross. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about Charing Cross. I was thinking about Charing Cross because when I lived in London, I worked right off of Charing Cross, in a building called the Adelphi Building, which was kind of off towards the Strand, off down towards the river. And my underground station was Charing Cross or Embankment, either one. It was midway between the two. I would also grab my lunch around Charing Cross as well. And after work, I used to walk up Charing Cross Road and poke around in all of the bookshops of Charing Cross Road. And that whole area around Trafalgar Square is such an interesting part of London. And it has so much history. I mean, all of London has so much history. But that area in particular is just a a real wealth of history. So for those of you who have not been to London, Charing Cross is right at the bend of the river in between Westminster and the city of London, um, right where the river makes this 90 degree bend. And it kind of is the midpoint between going south to Westminster and then heading east to the city itself. And then you can go straight up north towards Highgate and Hampstead and Camden, the area if you follow Charing Cross Road up north, then it turns into Tottenham Court Road, heads to Euston and up you go. Or you can turn to the west and head towards Buckingham Palace, the whole area around Soho and heading out from there towards eventually Notting Hill. 
And so Charing Cross is right in the middle of all of this, right? And now it's famous because of Nelson's Column right in the middle of Trafalgar Square, the National Portrait Gallery, the National Gallery, St. Martin's in the Field. All of that stuff is right in Trafalgar Square. So it's a super busy place. And it was always a busy place. So Charing Cross was actually this junction in London where six routes met. The routes I was just telling you about from the north, from the east, from the west, they all met right in Charing Cross. And the original Charing Cross was one of the medieval Eleanor crosses that stood right in the heart of the hamlet. It was its own little tiny little area called Charing from the 1290s until 1647 when during the English Civil War, all of those sorts of popery and anything that wasn't completely Protestant and Puritanism, Puritan was destroyed. So the Eleanor crosses are really interesting. It was this series of 12 tall decorated stone monuments topped with these crosses that went down in this line right down the eastern part of England. And Edward I had them built between 1291 and 1295, a four-year period, in memory of his most beloved wife, Eleanor of Castile. She died in November of 1290. And these crosses were placed in the areas where she rested along the route taken when her body was transported to London. So I suppose it wasn't her resting, but the people who were carrying her body. It took 12 days to bring her body from Lincoln down to London where she was buried. So these crosses were erected at each of the places where her body stopped, starting at Lincoln, and it went down Northamptonshire, Buckinghamshire, Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, and then eventually Cheapside and Charing, now Charing Cross, in Westminster. There are still three that survive more or less intact, but the other nine are completely gone. The largest and the biggest, the most ornate one of them all was the Charing Cross. So the name of the area, Charing, actually comes from an old English word, cheering, cheering, which refers to a bend in the river. There apparently is a theory that it comes from Cherine, which means dear queen in French, but that hamlet already existed before Eleanor's death. It has been there since at least the 11th century with that name. So it doesn't really work to have that theory. (laughs) But the name Cross was added to Charing's name after that cross went up. By the late 14th century, it's referred to as Charing Scrucha, which I completely butchered that because I can't really speak Middle English, but uh, that was the variant by the late 14th century. And now when you leave the Charing Cross station, it's a a major railway station, there is a 70-foot high sculpture in front of the station that was built in 1865. It was kind of a reimagining of what the original would have looked like, but it's not on the original site. And it's not based on the original. So Charing itself did play a role in Tudor history. There are a couple of major things to talk about with the village of Charing, the hamlet of Charing. In the 13th century, sometime between 1232 and 1236, there was a chapel and hospital founded there after St. Mary Runceval. And it was in land at the corner of modern Whitehall and down towards a wharf by the river. It was an Augustinian house tied to a mother house in the Pyrenees. In 1379, that house and lands were seized for the king under a statue for the forfeiture of the lands of schismatic aliens. They fought that action, 
and did get some of their rights back. But in 1414, Henry V suppressed these houses again, and the priory fell into a decline. And they also started having arguments about the collection of tithes with the parish church of St. Martin in the Fields. There is still, of course, a St. Martin in the Fields on the northern side of Trafalgar Square, close to where the original one would have been. It's not the original church that's there now. However, they do have very good classical music concerts. They're quite touristy. It's a lot of Vivaldi Four Seasons, popular stuff. But if you're visiting and you want to enjoy some good music, you can do that. They also have a good cafe in the crypt. So recommend that if you're visiting. But for the purposes of our time period, in 1541, religious artifacts that were collected during the dissolution of the monasteries were moved to St. Margaret's. And the chapel was adapted as a private house, and its almshouse was sequestered to the royal palace. So it became linked to the royal palace, and it was a place where they started storing some of these old relics and artifacts that they were taking from the monasteries. And interesting, this is also after Cromwell's time. So probably some of those things were taken from the people who started replacing him during the dissolution. And then 13 years later, there was Wyatt's Rebellion going on. This was when Thomas Wyatt tried to overthrow Mary I of England after she ascended to the throne and to replace her with Lady Jane Grey. And it was the event that was pretty much the final nail in the coffin for Lady Jane Grey. As long as Jane was still alive, there was going to be somebody that Protestants were going to rally around. And so Mary felt that after having been lenient with Lady Jane, she was going to have to kill her. But in 1554, Charing Cross was the site of the final battle of Wyatt's Rebellion. Wyatt's army had come from Kent. London Bridge had been barred to them. They crossed the river by what was then the next bridge upstream at Hampton Court. And so then they started coming on the northern side of the river from Hampton Court that brought them down St. Martin's Lane right to Whitehall. The palace at Whitehall was defended by a thousand men under Sir John Gage, based at Charing Cross. They retreated within Whitehall after firing their shot causing consternation within, thinking that the force had changed sides. And then the rebels, fearful of artillery on the higher ground around St. James's, did not press their attack, and they marched onto Ludgate, where they were then met by the tower garrison and surrendered. Now, the area right to the north of Charing Cross was all farmland. When you look at the old maps of London and Westminster, that whole area is farmland. And there's actually a legend that the term Soho, which is just to the north and west, was a hunting cry for when Henry VIII would go out hunting into the the woods and the, the fields that were there. I don't know if that's true or not, but I have heard that, that they would go, Soho, Soho. But running directly north is Charing Cross Road. If you're a Harry Potter fan, you've heard of Charing Cross Road because I think the night bus goes straight up Charing Cross Road. And so it featured in some of the Harry Potter books. And it's a, an area that's famous for all of the different bookshops. There's lots and lots of wonderful independent bookshops. And then just to the east is Bloomsbury, where a lot of the publishers are located. So it's a very literary area. But at that time, it would have been simply fields and forests and open land for the people who lived in and around Westminster and on the western side of the city to be able to graze animals and grow their crops. Thanks so much for listening to this week's YouTube highlights. Remember, you can go over and subscribe. History and Coffee, Heather Tesco, you will find me there. And we'll be back again next week with more highlights from what went out on YouTube throughout the week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. 
Blow northern wind, a sandful baby sweating. Blow northern 